Welcome to Better Words, a podcast for readers who want to know the stories behind the pages. We're your hosts, Caitlin and Michelle, two book nerds who bring you in-depth conversations about writing and publishing from those on the inside. Basically, we're just here to talk about books. We're so glad you're joining us. Hello, welcome back to Better Words. And even though we said last week that this week would be a book club, this is a perfect example of the chaos of our lives right now. We're not doing to a book fair, club. To be fair, we said maybe if we could decide on a book, which we did. We have, but late. So it'll probably be next week. Then I texted Caitlin and was like, I feel a little bit like I'm going to die under the weight of everything I need to do. Yeah, so can same. we just do a recommendation because I feel very stressed. Um, so maybe we'll do that next week. Who knows? Yeah, At we'll see moment, what happens. Hey? It feels like the wheels are falling off the plan at the end of this season, not in terms of our guests because well, actually, maybe a little bit in terms of our guests because we've had a few issues. But it's totally our organisational abilities and yeah. capacity. It's nothing yeah, to but do we've, with them. We've had, a few, we've had a few like scheduling clashes and books haven't arrived and things like that. So <laughs> it's just meant that like we've had a bit of a question mark over a couple of episodes and we were super planned at the start. And then, as you know, we had to take a little break and then, yeah, it, we've come back and we've just not been able to read fast enough because we've had things happening in our real lives. So yeah, it's very chaotic and, you know, doing things in real time doesn't always work, except I literally just got home from seeing Friends, the musical parody, <laughs> which I'm not even doing a recommendation. I just want to tell Michelle and all of you um, about seeing this musical because if you've listened to more than just this two minutes of our podcast you'll know that I love musicals and I love sitcoms particularly Friends. So this was an amazing Sunday afternoon. I had such a good time. God I sure hope I caught every little joke and everything but it was a really fun way to do it I think. It's only like an hour and a half. Obviously there's 10 years of TV to cram in but they kind of mesh things together and do the fun things of the show and like themes from across the series. Like there was a few times where someone says, oh my God, and other people say, oh my God. And then they're all like, wait, no. And they're like, like by the third time, Phoebe was like blocking the door because it's like saying, oh my God, three times summons Janice. And then she would come <laughs> in um or nasally <laughs> and lovely and be like oh my god it was so funny <laughs> and towards the end the last I don't know 20 minutes of the show they just kept saying it was Thanksgiving but like everything was happening it was like when Monica and Chandler got engaged and Rachel got off the plane and Phoebe was like and I'm married to Paul Rudd remember and like everything <laughs> and it was just like all Thanksgiving um because the Thanksgiving episodes are such a big deal on Friends but yeah it was so fun but so here's a real thing right at the very beginning the actor there's an actor who plays Gunther and other characters and he sort of came out at the start and he was like I'm here to keep the show on track sort of thing and he started off and he's like we're gonna play a game and he's like who's the biggest friend fan in the house or whatever and so I was like oh awesome audience participation and I put my hand up (laughs) and I didn't get picked even though the lovely stranger sitting next to me this like couple were there and they were like pick her because I clearly shot my hand like right up (sighs) um and I was only sitting in the second row and still didn't get picked but three other people did and then so then this actor was like so I'm going to test you all if you have to buzz in by doing the friends clap and it was the three people and the first question was what year did friends premiere and Every single one of them got it wrong. Like, I know I'm, I'm looking at you to be like, do you know what year Friends well, started airing? I think it's 1994, but is it a trick question? No, it's 1994. Oh. What but did so, they say? So the first person <laughs> said 1998. Second person was a girl who was a couple years younger than me. Um, She looked a bit younger than me and I'm sure has watched it on Netflix or whatever, but, like, she guessed 1986. <laughs> wrong. Um, and then... Someone else, and then the last person said 1993, 
And so this actor was like, oh, my God. He's like, why are you all even here? And he was like, everyone, what's the answer? And then the rest of the crowd yelled, it's 1994. But then they each got, like, at least one other question in this sort of, like, there was, like, four or five other questions that he quickly did as, like, a little quiz. Um, But I knew the answer to all of them. So if he had just picked me, I, like, would have won the challenge. (laughs) But, yeah, it was very fun. As I love in a musical parody that even things like Book of Mormon – do this where songs are similar to other songs like there was a cell block tango style song um but the songs were great there was like will they won't they all about ross and rachel and like and the like end finale song was like could i be any more in love with you or something it was so cute and joey and phoebe had like all their hilarious things and and there's lots of jokes about like phoebe never even sings smelly cat because it's like a copyright thing so but there's like lots of jokes to be like you know what that's about right and um and a few moments where they sort of look to the audience and they've said something and they're like did you get that that was like a friend's quote they're like (laughs) like do you get that reference um season 10 no yeah okay but yeah, it was really fun. All their costumes are great. The set was awesome. I just, I loved it. I had a great time. That's so cool. Was it weird seeing other people playing the characters? I mean. I always feel like it would weird me out a little bit. Like I wouldn't be able to concentrate because I'd be thinking the whole time that they don't look like. Yeah. So, I mean, all of the characters have quite a signature look, particularly in the early seasons. So, like, the actress playing Rachel had, like, a sort of blonde bob wig um, and was wearing, like, the little, like, skirts and stockings and, like, Phoebe's looks, like, all boho and the actor who played Ross was in a suit the whole time and Joey was in his, like, jeans and leather jacket and, like, T-shirt. And so, like, their look was really, really good. But I guess because it's such a different thing... I didn't really think about that that much. It's, you know what is a, this is a very strange comparison, but almost not, is that like when I saw Cursed Child on stage, there's a little part there that you're like, I know you're supposed to be like grown up Harry Potter. And to be fair, we still don't really know what any of these kids look like, you know, in their late 30s, early 40s, as they're supposed to be in Cursed Child. We don't know what dan or emma or rupert really look like yet that yeah they're not old enough but there's a bit where it's like i know you're harry but like you don't look like daddy radcliffe and like you've kind of got to get over that i think because that is supposed to be so true to the characters whereas this is like parody is in the title and they're breaking the fourth wall and making jokes about the show yeah so no them not look them not looking like it really didn't bother me at all i think because it's like a real spin on it that's cool Oh, excellent. Well, that was a, a fun little um, not recommendation. It's not really oh. a recommendation. I suppose I could recommend that if you, if it comes to your city, you know, don't be like, oh, what's this weird Friends musical? Like it's a really fun afternoon slash evening, depending on where you see it. So not a real recommendation um, <laughs> unless my recommendation could just be to rewatch Friends because watching it, I was like, I want to rewatch this. <laughs> I haven't done Yeah, although rewatching it lately has made me realize there's so many problematic parts. As yeah. Well. As anything from the late 90s has, unfortunately. Okay. Well, a few things. First of all, I don't want to recommend a book because you didn't recommend a book either, so let's just save that in case I have a very busy week next week. Also, it's Love Island UK season, which I'm delighted about I'm watching it every every morning before I do any work um it's great I feel like now we're heading into week two things actually starting to get interesting yeah Um, they've all gotten to know each other a little bit I suppose (laughs) certain characters are doing some out of left field things like it's really getting good (laughs) it's really getting there is uh there was a fight and like a breakup uh day yeah um it's, it was brilliant, though, because the Italian guy was saying that this the, the woman, Ekinsu, who is an actress, he was like, you get an Oscar. You're lying. Give her an Oscar. She lied to me. <laughs> it was just so good. And, um, yeah, oh, he just, yeah, she's a little bit problematic, but also I love the drama, so it's kind of funny. <laughs> um, I do think it's really funny, though. We should point out that... <laughs> 
we both listened to Shameless and when Thursday's episode came out last week, they had this discussion and I texted you and then said, I am Mish in this situation and you are the Zara. Yeah. And then <laughs> I love it. I also think it might have been Annabelle who said, oh my God, it's like Long Island or something like that. And I was like, <laughs> yeah. yeah, I can't believe it's on five days a week for two months. Like that's so much um, so I won't, I won't recommend that, um, even though I really want to, and I was going to recommend the unreal podcast, but then I was like, this would sound exactly like shameless. <laughs> so <laughs> I do recommend it, but I'm not going to talk about it because instead I want to recommend, so there's this podcast that I listen to called bad people, which is with, uh, a psychologist and a comedian, and it is mostly about true crime things not always murder, lots of different things. But for Pride Month, they are, they've like changed the show to be by people. And it's all about Pride Month related things. So the first episode, and I, I do like caveat this with, it hasn't finished airing yet. So I can't tell you about all of the episodes. Yeah. But the first one was about um, this book that was stopped from being sold because it contained like, um, problematic material but the problematic material was that it was the first time someone was like not condemning uh, bisexuality okay. so and the new episode is all about the origins of pride marches and how both the hosts make their own sexual identity seen and the history of bisexual symbols so it's all of that sort of stuff and I believe there are going to be four episodes and this is coupled with a book recommendation or a book that I would like to buy because Dr. Julia Shaw, who is the psychologist in this case, has written a book called Bi and it is about the history of bisexuality. So it's, yeah, I'm really enjoying listening to those. They're only half an hour. Um, I think the easiest thing is if you want to listen to it, obviously I'll put a link in the show notes, but um, I would search bad people and then these are just called by people and obviously the top ones in their feed. Awesome. That's a great recommendation. That sounds really interesting. Thank you. Um, but also listen to Unreal Podcast as well, which is about the history of reality television. Very interesting. Yes, I am interested enough to listen to the podcast. You were going to love that. To yeah. commit to like 200 hours or something per season of Love Island. That's <laughs> too much. <laughs> I mean, it's enjoyable, okay? It's trash, but it's enjoyable trash, all right? That's all I'll say on the matter. Um, and I sort of feel like I want to give you like a third podcast recommendation just, just because, um, then I have like three, I will say I've been loving red handed podcasts recently. I've been going back through all their old episodes, but one that, um, people who are interested in pop culture might enjoy or kind of find a bit scary and fascinating is, um, their recent episode on R. Kelly. Um, mm. and all his disgusting activities. Mm. Um, so that, like, I didn't really know, like, the history or anything. Like all details, yeah. Yeah. So that was really interesting. I listened to that on the plane back from Sydney, and it's, like, horrible but also really important, I think, to give context and to sort of explain why it's really not appropriate to keep supporting his songs. Yeah, it's a, it's important to know the stories behind some of these cases, isn't it? Yeah, definitely. Um, and they've had some really interesting ones lately. Um, they also did a great one on the Amityville Horror and they've done some really good ones. They did one on Tonya Harding as well, which I really enjoyed. Oh, yeah. Even though I know this story inside out, I was like, I will listen to anyone talk about Tonya Harding. The Tonya Harding story is so interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Have you listened to the You're Wrong About episodes about Tonya Harding? I'm fairly certain I have. I love them. Um, yes. I mean, I would love to listen to them again. That was like a two-part episode. And, and actually Sarah Marshall was like one of the first people to write like, hey. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We did her wrong. So it's so like in-depth and yeah, stuff. Yeah, that's but right. Anyway. I remember yeah, that. I would... So, yes, I have. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so, yeah, there's three podcast recommendations for you. Look, we will hopefully be back to chatting book stuff next week. Yeah, um, this is a completely chaotic and unusual chatty half recommendations of your podcast, not a recommendation at all for me, just telling you about my afternoon after my shopping spree. 
Yeah. We may or may not have a book club next week. It could just be recommendations, but you know, whatever. We'll see what happens. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Um, But we hope you enjoy our interview with the lovely Love Oz YA book to share this week. Um, And yeah, we've had a lot of, this is the other thing as well. We usually try and plan out better where we have like YA and adult all mixed in, but we got to this part and I even texted Caitlin before I started editing and I was like, which person should we do? Yeah, what so order are we going to do of... this in? But I yeah. think a nice nice chunk of Love Oz Way 8 at the end of our season for you yes. in the next few weeks, <laughs> which is yeah. amazing. And we love Aussie Way 8, So Yeah, there's some really good stuff coming up um, and we hope that you enjoy it. Our guest is a Melbourne-based writer and marketing professional. She's a graduate of RMIT's Professional Writing and Editing Program and now works in children's publishing. The Museum of Broken Things is her debut novel and was acquired after it was shortlisted in the 2020 Text Prize. Her work has also been longlisted in the 2019 Richel Prize and has appeared in various non-fiction publications. Welcome to Better Words, Lauren Draper. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to talk to you both. Thank you. I am excited to talk about this book. There's so many different elements to it. And I never get sick of talking about publishing and people's experience on both sides of that. So we'll get to that later. But honestly, the book, like, Caitlin sent it to me and was like, oh, my God, this sounds like just like our sort of book. It's exactly our kind of book. And I didn't actually realise, I think, from reading the blurb that it was shortlisted from the text prize which again I pro- I'm jumping around we but we love the text prize um but we should just start off can you tell us a bit about the book for those who haven't read it yet I sure can so the book follows Reese who's recently moved to a small beachside town and she's not having the best time with it she's not really made any friends but also not really making effort to make any friends it's pretty obvious from the opening chapters that she's also kind of running away from something in her past and she's just so resistant to thinking about it. Um, And in the present day, her grandmother's recently passed away and so the story develops in tandem with two plot points. One, she inherits like a mysterious book from her nan and there's some weird things inside and she doesn't really know what's going on. And two is really that she's living a normal teenage life and she's sort of figuring out how to make friends again and, you know, there's a little bit of a romance and she's trying to figure out what to do next because she can't go back but she is really stubborn about going forward and you can't live in that kind of stasis forever so it's sort of about what happens when you give in to that um and sort of acknowledge that you need to keep going on whether or not life is imperfect at the time oh it's such a great novel um just the sort of yeah exactly the sort of thing that we love and there is a very delightful romance there's yeah, an even more it's got everything yeah we love we love this sort of stuff um so something that happens in the book and I guess this is probably like might sound like a weird bit to hone in on for the first question but Reese's grandmother you said obviously has recently passed away and she leaves some stuff to Reese and it brings up a lot of memories but it's also something that gets explored throughout book so can you tell us a little bit about what that is and and how that sort of works within the book uh if you're referring to the apothecary curio that's actually sort of the piece that sparked the entire idea for the novel um and I really wanted to write something contemporary and I wanted to sort of have fun with modern dialogue and you know fresh teenage voices and I kind of didn't know how to make that work and I saw this curio in a news article someone had found a real life version And for those who aren't familiar with it, it's basically a fake sort of wooden looking book with little storage compartments in it. And it was the real version was going up for auction in Germany. And I was like, what is this? It's so weird. I love this. Like, I'm obsessed with this like weird piece of history. I must know more. Um, And so that just became like a bit of an investigation. I thought like this would be so interesting to receive in modern day. And what would you do with it? And how would you even come about obtaining this? And it just kind of clicked with this idea of, well, I wanted to write a contemporary, but I wanted to have a bit of mystery in there. And it it sort of felt like that perfect element to explore. 
as well. I'm glad that you enjoyed it because I thought it was such an odd thing to pop in, but I thought, you know, I'm just going to go for it. We'll see what happens. And the other thing too was all the medical textbooks. So did you actually have to like research all that stuff? And does it really, like, is it really that rare? And I guess this whole other world of these incredibly rare books, I had no idea. It was really interesting to look into that. So at the time when I first started, I had just left Melbourne University and I was working there um, professionally. And Melbourne University has a museum of sort of, it's not called medical oddities, but it's um, similar. And they exhibit those pieces throughout the university. And I was in the library one day. And again, like my brain just went, this is so weird. I must know more, which is how most of my books start, I think. You know, honestly, I didn't think too much of it, um, but I just thought it was really interesting. And I used to like to go and look at the exhibits. Um, And when I started writing the book, I was investigating these texts and they're all based in truth. So all of the books mentioned in the books do exist. They are all rare texts. They are all valuable to varying degrees. I think I mentioned that one was worth $10,000. I never really found a book that was worth $10,000, but the rest of them being like quite for the story, it's fine. Yeah, I know. It's, it, I feel like you can have a, a bit of fun with it, but yes, there are, there is a market for rare and valuable medical texts and it is completely fascinating to see what the world has evolved from in terms of what was considered cutting edge medical treatments um, to what we actually understand today as well. And within that, there was definitely an element of mysticism and, you know, rubbing egg yolk on your head to cure a migraine, you know, all of that kind of, or to ward off ill spirits is so interesting and bizarre. And I thought that teenagers would really enjoy it um, and that it would be really fun and it would kind of offset the gloomier elements of the book as well. Yeah. I mean, I guess like the first thing any of us hear about that sort of stuff is usually in relation to like the plague, like <laughs> the thing we sort of like, I learned about it in history class anyway, where you learn about the weird things they did. But of course there were all these other weird remedies and stuff and all these other things that, you know, someone told someone else to do and, it, you know, it just sort of gets passed down. Yeah, I loved that um, of all these things that, like, you know, Reese has inherited them from her grandmother and they all seem so, like, odd and bizarre and it's just it is that perfect thing of, like, you think your grandparents are, like, the oldest people in the world. But, like, at the moment that, like, we're living in now or whatever, most people Reese's age would have grandparents who have lived through a lot of medical advancement and technological change. And it would be really dramatic over the course of a career for someone who they say Reese's grandmother was like one of the first female surgeons. And it's really quite impressive. And also the curio thing, I feel like a lot of people would see that and it would spark the idea of like, I mean, not me, because I hate fantasy, not hate, but you know, but it seems like something that would easily spark a a fantasy novel or more magical storyline. And so I love that it sparked a contemporary storyline for you. Yeah. We love contemporary. (laughs) Not massive fantasy readers. But we love contemporary. So we love that. And I think it's interesting too, like talking about the way medicine has evolved, because one of the the things that I, I loved doing the first time I went to London was actually so many good free museums and there was one that I found purely because I was looking for quirky free museums and it's called the Welcome Collection and it is like the exhibit I went to was like an exploration of medical related advertising and oh that's cool it was so interesting there's all this other medical stuff as well because I'm pretty sure let me do a quick quick live google it is actually, uh, yeah, so the, the museum itself is about science, medicine, life and art. And I remember just being fascinated by the way it went through obviously like cigarette advertising is a, is a great one, but all these other ones around like vitamins and things like that. But then there was also obviously other parts of the exhibit that were just cool old things related to medicine and it was yeah so their permanent exhibition is called medicine man and it's just about the way that it says here just sir henry wellcombe who it's named after was a collector who amassed well over a million books paintings and objects from around the world aiming to tell a global story of health and medicine so that 
it just made me think a lot of that too. And this idea that it is, it is fascinating. And I, would love to go back there and look. It's just so cool. That sounds amazing. And I think I have to go visit that and it can be a tax expense. (laughs) Yes. Yeah, obviously. Yeah, no, it's so good. And like, Caitlin, you're going to be in London soon. Yeah, I'm in. (laughs) So many cool free museums, but that one was one, and especially like Caitlin, you worked in marketing as well. Like, I think the combination of like the history stuff with the marketing, I was like, oh, this is amazing. Yeah. Very Mad Men vibes. It was great. Because what is interesting and, you know, that's a thing in your book as well, Lauren, is how it seems so silly. And it's like, how did people not realize that smoking was bad for you? And like, you know, all of these things, it seems so silly. And that's really quite fun for Reese and Gideon and everyone to like look through the books and be like, could this be worth anything? It's like, like I loved there's a scene which hopefully will not give anything away, but there's a scene where some where they're getting one of the books and, and one of the items checked out and they're like, Oh, wow. And Reese is like, I threw this on the floor yesterday and they're telling me it's worth a lot of money. Because <laughs> like, oh, oh, she's dear. seventeen and that's what you do. Like you're like, whatever. This is some dusty old book. Yeah. yeah. Um, I also loved the way that you really built this we get such a strong idea of who Nana Blackwell was. Yeah. <laughs> already passed away. And I think, like, I love the fact that these rare, amazing medical textbooks are just interspersed with her, like, bodice ripper novels. <laughs> I know, her Mills and Boone collection. Yeah, so I, I love it. She seems like such a character. Was it difficult for you to sort of create that character and have that sense of character when she's essentially absent from the story it wasn't because I had such close relationships not only with my grandmother but my great-grandmother lived to almost 100 Mm -hmm. um and so I had these two incredibly strong matriarchal women in my family who had these really kooky eclectic tastes and my great-grandmother I um I wasn't allowed to go and say goodnight to her after 9pm because she watched these absolutely horrific detective horror movies um, and so it was really when I was thinking about, you know, Nana Blackwell and all the incredible achievements that she's made over her lifetime, I think it was still important to show that complex women can still have these, like, you know, sort of not everything is highbrow. You, you know, your nan probably has read a Mills and Boone. She probably is watching a grisly murder mystery. Um, and the pieces of their life are not just professional or family based. They're sort of a complex tapestry that follows them over their lifetime. And it just became this thing that became more and more fun to build on as the book went on. So lovely to know that you were inspired by your own relationship with your grandmothers as well. Yeah, um, I just have so much love for all of the women in my life, especially, but my grandmothers. It's really special to have those that sort of presence in your life growing up. Um, and so supportive, especially of me reading when I was younger. They sort of didn't, nobody was monitoring what I was reading to perhaps a concerning degree. Um, okay. But I was being, they were like, I think you'll love this. I think you'll love this. And somebody gave me um, Raymond E. Feist's Magician when I was like 11 years old, which oh. is something like 700 pages. And everyone just sort of believed that that was okay. And so it was really it's a really lovely thing as a child to know that you had that sort of support. But I look back at it and I'm like, maybe they should have checked a couple of things. Um, but, you know, I'm not scarred yeah. for that, so it's fine. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You turned out fine. It's all good. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, of course, as we are saying, Nana Blackwell is not present for the whole novel. And the kind of the Kickstarter of where we join Reese's story is that she's just recently died and they're going, you know, to the will and they've been at the funeral and, all of that and for her whole family it's obviously a huge focus of the book their grief and like cleaning up the house and going through all the books and everything why was that something that you wanted to explore and maybe so freshly as well it was an interesting process in that it was sort of life imitating art because I had already started writing the book and I'd had this idea that Originally, the terrible thing that happened, which I won't spoil for readers who haven't finished it yet, was going to be the main focus of the novel. And Mm -hmm. Reese's grandmother passing away is sort of a convenient plot device to push her and Gideon together to give Reese more of a project to focus on, something to aim for. 
And I had included the scene of her clearing out the house. And then halfway through my writing the novel, my great-grandmother did actually pass away and we went to go clean out her room. And I was sort of standing there thinking, A, it's really weird that I've written this thing in the book and B, it's much more affecting that you think than you perhaps think it's going to be, especially when a loved one's in a nursing home and their entire life is condensed down to a room. But that's actually not all that's left. And you do realise that there are pieces you don't know, that there's a life that they lived that for many, many years it hasn't involved you. And one of the most interesting things that I found is I never realised that my great-grandmother travelled extensively and we were almost done, you know, pulling out her clothes and things. And I reached up in the cupboard just to double-check that nothing was left and we found this photo album and initially I thought it wasn't hers because there's photos of Egypt, there's photos of Turkey, there's photos of Greece. And I thought, whose photo album is this? And dad looks over my shoulder and goes, well, that's that's Doris. And it was such a revelation to me that this part of her life had never been spoken about. And then that kind of was the catalyst for Nana Blackwell to be more present. I say present inverted commas because she's not really there, but for her life to have left more remnants for Reese. And I think that kind of overtook Reese's focus as well. And it was... Yeah, it was a really it was a really strange thing to be experiencing it and writing it at the same time. And it's certainly not my life and not my family, but there are emotions there that are very true to what we all experienced as well. Was it cathartic to to go through that process of writing it? It was it was upsetting because my family's in um, Western Australia and I'm in Victoria, so it felt like closure in a way that I could get. Um, when I couldn't be physically present. So I I was flying back and forth a lot, but it is quite sad to to be missing key moments and to not be there for my grandmother who's experiencing loss at the same time. Um, And to see the adults in your life also going through a grieving process is also something that I think made its way into the book. You see Reese's mum really struggling with that. Um, And I think that there, yeah, there's inspirations. I I always say that I don't write about my real life just because I think it's too close and it's a bit odd. But certainly I think that your experience in one way or another will make itself known on the page. And those experiences are relatable. Like, unfortunately, most if most of us haven't yet, we will have to, you know, clear out those rooms. You pack up things, you find out things about your grandparents that you never knew. Yeah, it's so... It is really difficult, but I think there's also levity to be found because one of the things that is very true to my own life, and it's only a very small piece, I found out that my nan used to smuggle rum into the nursing home and she got her next door. She became best friends with her next door neighbor and she got her next door neighbor so drunk she fell off the bed. Um, (laughs) And so I added, I had to add the scene where they go back to the um, room to double check and um, the dad says something like oh I just need to check to make sure that nothing's left behind we don't want them to think your nan's a booze hound and that scene got a very little piece of um, Doris left to the world so she did enjoy a a cheeky nighttime nip. (laughs) (laughs) That's so funny I love that. (laughs) Yeah yeah but I think you just capture really beautifully the idea of there being this whole life in the house separate from the nursing home and the emotions around that and even I could be wrong but I'm sure that there's a bit where you know she's Reese is just thinking about you know seeing her grandmother's handwriting and stuff like that like when we were going through my dad's stuff I was like throwing out you know random bits of paper but as I was doing it I was thinking like it's so weird that he's never going to right I'm not going to see his handwriting ever again on just a random envelope that he's using as his filing system like there's so many weird little things like that and I think it it doesn't surprise me at all that your own experiences you know because it feels so true to life that it's not the big things that really sort of affect you like that it's all these little tiny things there's definitely nostalgia and memory stored in items more than I think we realise. You think it's going to be the big things like the photo books, um, but definitely handwriting or little trinkets around the room and you think it was important enough for them to keep. Why is it not important enough for me to keep? Um, And that's a really, yeah, it's a really stressful process, but 
I I suppose it's something that a lot of people end up going through as well. So I hope it feels authentic to the people who are reading about this and going through it and that it provides some small measure of comfort just to know that it's not um, an isolated experience and that you can share it with other people as well. Yeah. I'm I'm not someone who's going to throw things away lightly. So yeah, (laughs) anything that I buy now just lives in my house forever. We'll find a spot for it. Yeah. (laughs) Which kind of makes me think that the title is quite good then. You seem broken things <laughs> yeah. it was um I was on holiday in America and we came across this little like art exhibition when it was called I think it was called the Museum of Broken Hearts or something like that and everyone had left notes to their ex-partners as part of the display so you wrote down like all the ways that they had wronged you or you know, if you still cared for them, all the things that you miss. And I was like, that's a really cool concept. And that was years and years and years before I even started to write. And then when I was starting to write this book and thinking about a title, it felt appropriate that there's an acknowledgement of a literal, tangible museum, but it's also acknowledging all of the ways in which not only the people, but the things that they come across are sort of shattered throughout the book and piecing themselves together again. And I think you can interpret it in multiple ways because everyone in this book is going through something. No one's having an easy time um, and you can sort of apply it to whichever character you think it suits. Yeah. And actually, um, you know, something else we'd love to talk about is the sibling relationships. Like that's a huge focus, you know, not just between Reese and her brother Theo, but the siblings that she befriends um, and they have like very different relationships going on and stuff. Why did you sort of want to explore and contrast their two sets of relationships? It was really unintentional and I've been asked this recently um, by some of the teens on the Readings Teen Advisory Board and they said like oh we loved Miles and Ava so much like what's your relationship with your siblings like and I had to I'm like I'm sorry to disappoint you but me and my sister are super super close um, but I <laughs> I wanted Reese to have somebody that she could talk to and somebody that she could trust and somebody that understood what she went through, but who was also going to challenge her a little bit in the way that I think you only get that level of brutal honesty from siblings who know that they can say what's on their mind and always be forgiven. And I think not only is Theo a little bit of comic relief, but he really pulls through. There's one particular moment where Reese really, really needs someone and he's the one that's there. Um, And in contrast, Miles and Ava, who are siblings who are almost always at odds, were two people that I think were drawn to Reese as sort of an opposites attract. And I just wanted to explore how loss can impact two people in similar circumstances in really different ways. And that's something that comes up further along in the book, how that's affected Miles and Ava. But it was, it just felt like a natural thing to include a set of siblings who don't always get along because unfortunately siblings don't always find themselves at a personality match, especially in childhood and adolescence where you're sort of trying to make your own mark of independence. And if you're very close in age, that's sometimes really hard to achieve and you do kind of bat heads. But yes, just to reiterate, if my mum is listening to this, my sister and I are very close. We're very happy. (laughs) We have a great relationship. We're all good. (laughs) <laughs> oh, but come on. Did you squabble like Miles and Ava did when you were like 16, 17 or however old We you did were? because my sister is six years younger than me. So she always wanted to be around my friends and I. And so when I was a teenager, she was still in primary school. And, you know, she always wanted to sit in the room. She's like, I won't say anything. I'll just sit with you. And I was like, oh my God, she makes me look so uncool. And I wish I could actually get that time back because she was the sweetest little thing. And my friends loved her and she had the face of an angel. So nobody ever said no to her. And I know. It was, yeah. there was definitely squabbles, but um, it's interesting being older now because now I'm 30 and she's in her early 20s. And I just think, my God, take my advice. I've been where you've been. Make your life easy. Just listen to me. I know my brother is six years younger than me and I have a sister who's two years younger than me as well. And I think I probably always felt like I was the one who wanted to hang out with her friends. She couldn't have cared less about my friends. My friends were like, you know, we were the theatre dorks. Um, yeah, like but, no offence, but I think that's because Mickey's just a cooler person. Yeah, <laughs> she's like, she's just cooler. <laughs> Yeah, I know that we weren't friends then, Caitlin, but I I think yeah, in high school, definitely she was cooler, and like she likes my friends now. It's fine. Like we've always gotten along pretty well, but yeah, yeah, man, my sister is much cooler than me now as well. But I've accepted, I've accepted that this was always inevitable. I had a good run, 
um, over to her. (laughs) (laughs) But they are so fun and it is really nice to see Reese make new friends in her new home, which is definitely some of the lighter content in this book. And the light stuff and the dark stuff is balanced really, like, I mean, I don't know. I felt like really, really evenly. It was like it never, nothing ever seemed to be like this is the happy moment and this is the dark moment. It was just very, um, almost very even across the entire novel, um, which I found really interesting. And I think it's becoming a bit of a theme this year on the podcast, Michelle, this like, oh, you balanced the light and the dark so well. How was that to write? And I just like... I mean, A, how was that to write? Did you find it hard to balance? But also, B, why is this becoming such a thing in contemporary fiction at the moment? Like, there's always, I feel like contemporary fiction, even, you know, contemporary YA, that's often quite cheery and fun to read, which this still is, is there's a lot of dark stuff creeping into all these books now, isn't there? I think there's an element of acknowledging that teenagers are going through experiences the same as everybody else and they deserve to have their emotions validated and that perhaps in the early years of young adult publishing there was more of a focus on, oh, they're just kids, they do kid things, but actually everything that we go through as adults they go through as teenagers as well. Um, But in terms of balancing it, I keep telling everybody I wanted to write a book about grief but I didn't want it to be sad. And that was for two reasons. Accomplished. <laughs> okay. Yeah. I think, yeah. Accomplished, but it is, that's quite a funny sentence to say. Yeah. It's like, it's going to be really sad, but not sad. Yeah. Terrible things will happen, but everyone's okay. I promise. Um, yeah. It was a really interesting experience in that I started writing it thinking I was writing one sort of book and it sort of turned out another way. And at the time um, I was going through a process of grief and sort of, not really realizing before that time that life doesn't stop. You don't get indefinite annual leave. You don't get to put everything on hold. Your bills still come and you sort of have to find a way to live in the real world while going through these life-changing emotions. And at at a certain point in that process, you realize that most people around you have gone through that as well. But when it's happening to you, it's soul crushing and it does feel insurmountable. And I think you see that paralysis in Reese, especially at the start, because she's very much, you know, this has only ever happened to me. Like I'm going through this thing. Nobody understands. Um, And I think that that's true to a degree, especially when you're young and you lose somebody like that. But she, as the novel goes on, sort of grows to accept help. And if not help, then empathy and sort of leaning on her new community and her new friends in a way that helps her, sort of heal and go on as well. Sorry to be such a downer in this stage of the podcast. (laughs) I promise there are funny moments in the book and you will laugh. (laughs) But I think that's so true. Like you do with everybody else and you're like, how are you just carrying on as normal? Like it's, it's such a strange, strange feeling. And you're like, this is momentous for me. Why are you not like, why are you just going about and getting your like normal coffee? Like how are you driving around like normal people? Like, everything's changing and it's such can, a weird phenomenon it can feel so indignant like how dare you be happy when I'm going through this thing but I think and this is really the crux of the book is that you can be happy and you can grieve you can be going through something terrible and accept that there are good things in life and that's really what the book aims to sort of impart on readers um, especially young people going through that because it's so tremendously difficult when life is already changing so dramatically at the end of high school to sort of experience loss like that not only young people it's really applicable to anybody but life isn't just one thing at a time yeah it's always everything all at once to quote an excellent movie title (laughs) (laughs) it is an excellent movie title yeah everything is just all at once but yeah um I want to keep talking about the book but I really don't want to like give away plot points because I feel like if we keep going, we're going to give something away. But, Lauren, we saw on socials that you recreated the book cover with your sister and Andrew Garfield. Yes, I did. Please don't sue me, Andrew Garfield. Oh, I 
I loved it. I hope that he would like it. It was a very funny thing. To get into that position on the chair too. So I had a go at it at first, which is included in the in the clip, and then I realised that my knees and my back don't bend that way anymore. Um, so I'm really happy that somebody was able to take the reins for me on that. Um, but I really adore my garbage chair, and now it's um, used by my partner and my dog. They have their daily coffee together outside. Um, so it was well worth rescuing, in my opinion. <laughs> That's amazing. But that. yeah, I I mean, I love a good, a good cover recreation. Um, and I also know you said in the video that the original cover had bookshelves in the background. And so I just kind of wanted to ask, I love asking about like the cover design and everything. So yeah. like, is it what you imagined? Like, did you have ideas of what you thought your book cover would look like? It's so strange because I work in and I go to covers meetings as part of my role and I've never seen a cover I didn't like. I go to cover meetings and I'm like, <laughs> yes, all beautiful, no thoughts, love it. Um, and oh my I, God, that's so funny. I feel like I go to them and I'm like, I like this one and not that one. Are we like... We had ones that was like had sandwiches on the other day and I was like, I want to eat this sandwich but not that sandwich. And to like <laughs> the head of design with the CEO in the room and I was like, I like this one. <laughs> It's such an interesting process. And even with that experience, I didn't have a vision for the cover. And I think it's because there's so many things happening in the book. And I had yeah. no idea how you would encapsulate this novel in a single image. And the cover designer is Imogen Stubbs and the cover illustrator is Adele Laris. Um, and Adele initially created this incredibly beautiful watercolour image that had the bookshelves in the back. And I loved the composition of the picture itself. And I am going to share it on um, my Instagram next week so people can sort of see how that process unraveled. Um, But it was, it had really dark blue, purpley hues. And we just sort of felt that it was a bit too heavy and that it made the book seem sort of exclusively sad, whereas it's sort of sad and also happy and silly. Um, so we re- it ended up being tweaked to Reese and Gideon as a version now. But I have to say I absolutely loved the books being included on the version um, and I love books on books covers. I think that's so much fun. Um, but, yeah, it's a completely weird process for your own book and I really I didn't want to say too much because I knew that I was way too close to it and so I was sort yeah. of just like, just show me the draft and then show me the final and it'll be great. <laughs> I do think that that's quite interesting because as you'll know as well like sometimes the author and the publisher can think look like this is like what has come to me this is what I'm thinking and sometimes they go I don't know here's some pages for the designer to read like have a go like I've got no clue yeah so I love seeing what comes out it was really interesting in that um, the illustrator only developed two concepts because she she and also my editor felt like they were the strongest parts of the book. And I don't mind saying what the other thing is because it happens immediately in the first chapter. Um, but the other idea was Reese jumping off the pier um, in the dress she's wearing and then the idea which the cover is taken from is just in Nana Blackwell's house. And I felt like it had it had to be the house, right? It had to be the books. It had to be the two of them. That just felt like such a natural way for the cover to lean in the end as well. It's interesting, like what like what would we think the book is about just from looking at the cover of like what I'm sure would be a gorgeous illustration of Reese jumping off the pier in a yeah. formal dress. But yeah, interesting. Yeah. Oh, I love all behind the scenes stuff. Um, more behind the scenes can you tell us a little bit about your publishing journey so far I can so I like many 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 people who have become writers and publishing people did the RMIT professional writing and editing program I had been sort of coerced into thinking that I was going to enjoy journalism just by my teachers (laughs) and all the adults and they were like you love writing why don't you become a journalist and I didn't really have a good idea of anything else that I wanted to do I just wanted to write do you think people say that because it seems more achievable than like a novelist well this is part of my answer so I started doing journalism and I had had my eye on the professional writing and editing program but I was like this is insane like people don't just become authors like it's more difficult than this and then I thought, you know what, stuff it. I'm gonna go for it. I owe it to myself to try. And then I realized through doing this program that there are so many jobs in publishing that exist that you don't see as a reader because they're invisible jobs. And I think that 
not only did I as a person super interested in books didn't know that, but if I didn't know that, I don't expect my you know high school English teacher or my parents to be able to know that and suggest that as a career path. So that was great. I met so many beautiful people through that course. And then I started my first job at an adult fiction publisher. Sorry, I mean grown-ups because I work in children's publishing. It wasn't scandalous. It's exactly <laughs> what happened to me when I first got my job at Harper. I was telling people like at my old job in Rocky and friends and family and everything. And then I go, okay, so I'll be working in the adult division. And people go, huh? And I go, no, I just mean like not children's. Yeah, yeah. Like just grown-ups. I don't know why everyone, like you immediately say the adult books division and everyone's mind goes to Mills and Moon essentially. So I started my job at this publisher and I was dead set that I wanted to be an editor. Like that was the dream. And I think it's like such a glamorous role and it's something that you hear more about. And it's often the job that you see in movies and TV shows, Hello Younger. Um, And I was like, yes, this is amazing. Going to be an editor. One, I can't spell. Two, I have no attention span. And so I started doing really sort of baby editorial tasks. And I realized that maybe I didn't enjoy this thing that I had pinned my hopes and dreams in. Um, and it was purely coincidental that a job in the marketing department came up and at this stage I'd been a publicist, publishing assistant for a year. And I thought, you know, I'm going to put my hand up for it and apply. And it was just so much fun. And I really enjoy that. It's really creative, that it changes so much day to day that you get to work across a book from its entire lifespan and fell in love with it. But I had such a passion for kids and young adult books that I knew I would sort of have to leave eventually. And then my job at my current publisher came up with the kids division. And it's just an absolute dream to work with this age group. It's so much fun. So I'm on a mission to make marketing the new sexy publishing job. I think people need to know more about it. Um, But yes, I love it. Yes, I agree. Because even I think after editor, next is like publicist and people would probably think that like a book publicist is like cool and they're the ones that like go to lunch with the authors and (laughs) do things and everything. But I don't know. I feel like people need to know about marketing. So I'm a marketing publicist hybrid and um, I really admire publicists because they do long, long days and I don't know if I could ever go full time into that. Um, But yes, I admire them so very much for the work they do. No, so do I because I'm in marketing as well and I have helped out with like a few things here and there and everything in previous like roles and just helping out where I can. And I went to the Sydney Writers Festival as sort of like a publicist rep where you (laughs) escort the authors like to their events and help with the signing and everything. And it's long days and it's a lot of work. And that was like, I didn't even do anything. I didn't organize the festival. Like what, like imagine when they're like organizing all the interviews and everything. It's a lot of work. Um, So you're working in publishing how do you then get idea to book that's coming out? <laughs> so I did not tell anyone that I was writing a book. And I think it's a really weird thing to work in-house and be writing because you work with not only such talented authors, but talented publishers and editors who know what makes the crux of a good story. And whenever you tell someone I'm writing a book, the first question is what about? And I completely did not want to say what about, especially because I was still working at the grown-up publisher when I started. But the kernel of this idea actually came quite suddenly. I was working on a fantasy book and I was working on it for years and years and years and it was so slow. And I was like, you know what? I just want to say, I want to use funny modern language. I want to have fun dialogue. I want to have an easy romance. I want to have like modern friendships where you don't have to go to great pains to explain every single thing. And I always thought that my Western Australian hometown would make a great scene, like setting for a book. It's very ideal, very picturesque, um, but always sort of thought like, God, it's a bit slow there. Like life is, you know, taking an easy pace. So you'd have to have something like really exciting to kind of spark this journey for somebody. Um, And that piece was the curio when I saw it online. Um, And then it just became this sort of bizarre melding of contemporary, what I thought was maybe a romance novel to becoming a contemporary young adult novel with a side of mystery. And by the time I'd sort of thought this over in my head for a long time, because I need to percolate on ideas for a long time before I start writing. So by the time the text prize posted that they were opening for entries and it was six months away, I thought this is an amazing opportunity 
to push myself to submit, not only because I think that the Text Prize Young Adult list is incredible and I admired them so much, but also because I'll have a finished manuscript. And I was so burnt out from doing this fantasy thing for years and years and years and not finishing it. And I thought, you know what, I want to finish something. So I just went absolutely full pelt towards that deadline, um, which was complete madness and I don't recommend it. But it was a lot of fun and I think I learned a lot about myself and a lot about writing in that six months that I probably wouldn't have been able to achieve if I'd sort of gone at my usual pace as well. Wow. So did you write the whole first draft in six months? I did. So, and I want to preface that by saying I had kicked this idea around in my head for a while. It wasn't like at the six six month mark, I thought I need to write an entirely new story and go, but it was, okay, I've got this idea and I want to write it. Why don't I use this six months to write it? And that was the entire first draft. And I will say that the last quarter of the book was a complete schmuzzle and it was happening in tandem with me starting a new job and I was flying to Sydney and I was up proofreading this thing until like three o'clock in the morning. I had to get up at five o'clock to go and get on the plane. So I couldn't even print it and send it myself. Like my partner had to take it to the post office, um, complete mad dash. But I, I think I've like, you know, got rose colored rose-coloured goggles for this because in my mind it was fun but at the time I remember being highly strung out about this yeah it sounds very stressful (laughs) yeah so you know we said before that we love the text prize we do so first of all how did you feel being shortlisted for that and then also you know what's your feeling working publishing now being published by text as well obviously we're a little bit biased there we love them but genuinely what is it about the text prize because there just seems to be something very special about the novels that come out of the text prize so I remember that um, I had started at RMIT and somebody from text came to speak to us lots of publishers do and introduced me to the text prize I think at this stage I was 19 years old and I sort of looked at the list and I thought, oh, that's really great. And then ever, every year it seemed like it just got bigger and better and every book they picked, it's like they've got the golden touch for the text prize. I just loved every single winner I thought was incredible and they were all so unique. They all had a point of difference, something that won wasn't the thing that won the year after. And that was so amazing. And so I wrote this manuscript and I'm thinking, this is ridiculous. Like no one can write a good book in six months. And all I wanted, I knew that I wanted to be published and I love text and I entered because I would have been incredibly happy to be published with them. But I thought best case scenario is I get long listed and I can put it on my resume and that'll help me get published. Enter the book, realize there is no long list. There's only a short list. And I thought, well, that's it. The journey's over. Like there's no way. And so to get the call that I was on the shortlist, I thought if this is as far as I go, like I am absolutely giddy and it's incredible to know that these people who have read 300 entries think that, you know, mine is worthy of being shortlisted. And then to get the call that um, they wanted to publish it regardless was just, I cried. I was in the middle of a meeting and I could see my editor was calling me on my phone and I was like, uh-huh, uh-huh, this is so interesting. I've, I've really got to go. There's an emergency. I hear my fire alarm. I don't know. Um, so I hung up and answered the call. And, just, and we were in the middle of lockdown and I hadn't seen my family <clears> for so long and it was just this bright spot in the middle of such a difficult year and I will be yeah. eternally grateful to them for that. It was a very emotional um, phone call. <laughs> yeah, God, that's amazing. Yeah. So did you find out that they wanted to publish it after they'd announced the winner? No. So they announced the shortlist and I didn't know what was going to happen. I knew generally that they told people before the public announcement, um, which is quite common with most prizes. And I think it was about a month after the shortlist that Samantha called to say, you haven't won. I'm very sorry. And I was like, that's fine. I didn't think that I would. Um, but we want to publish you. And then I think I had to keep the secret for about another month after that before the public announcement was made. And I knew at the time that at least two of the other entrants had also been offered publishing deals. And we now have a gorgeous little group chat with them as well. So that was really lovely. I love that. Yeah. Oh, that's so cute. Your little prize buddies. I know. <laughs> and just lovely to have support from debut authors going through the same thing. And a lot of people, I think, have assumed that the process would be easy because I do work in-house and I sort of know the process. And to an extent, that's true. But you're still going through debut author emotions of, you know, a bit of imposter syndrome, a bit of, you know, oh, my God, have I read the book enough? Have I edited it enough? 
you know, people are going to be reading something I wrote for the first time. So it's such a beautiful thing to have that community. And indeed, the Love Olds YA community is generally so supportive as well. Oh, they're the best. They're just the best. So was there what maybe one thing that surprised you the most being on the other side? I was really surprised at how impactful the marketing publicity process would be because I thought that I knew every step of the way. And, you know, when I tell my authors, you know, we're going to pop you down for festival consideration, we're going to do a launch, you're going to do like newspaper publicity. And that was my everyday fodder. But it was really, I think thinking about the launch is really bizarre because I I'm so used to being on the other side of things. The thought of standing on stage in front of 60 people is actually making me super nervous. And I have so much sympathy to any of my authors who I've thrust onto a stage. I'm so sorry. Um, I don't think I realized how stressful it was. And I think it's the most surprising because it was my everyday. Wow. I love that. What your job is, is the bit that you were like, oh, someone's doing this for me. And I didn't, and I I don't know whether or not I'm being an absolute menace or if I'm being really helpful, but I'll email and be like, um, I had this idea for social media tiles. Like if you've got the time, no, no problems at all. If you don't, um, and then, you know, creating like, I'm going to Sydney for something else. I was like, you know, I've, here's a proposed itinerary of bookstores I can visit. So I love that. Can my, you your authors? So you're like, I know where to go. <laughs> they might never speak to me again after this, or I've been really helpful, but they're just the, the greatest team, really. So great. I love that. Do you have any advice for yourself, um, you know, when you started? I wish I had just put the words on paper earlier and believed that I could finish a draft because I think that that was the biggest obstacle when I started was thinking that I didn't want to write if the writing was going to be bad. But over, you know, when you've only got such a short turnaround period of six months, you can't afford to not feel like writing that day. You can't afford to wait for a perfect day of a silent house with no distractions and understanding that editing bad words was better than staring at a blank page is something that I just wish I could have known using years earlier because I think I would have been a lot more efficient. But I think you also have to realise that for yourself and it is really difficult to confront what you consider to be bad writing as well because I think it gives you a little bit of a complex about you being a bad writer but actually it's just a draft and drafts can be bad and that's completely fine and getting to that point was the most helpful thing I think that I've done. Yeah, you've got to do the bad first draft to keep revising it and it gets better and better. Yeah, and I really hate bad first drafts because I write, when I have the time, I write very cleanly and I kind of am an edit-as-I-go sort of person and I have a writer's group so I'm revising like quite close to the work. But just if you've got 15 minutes to use, being able to use the 15 minutes was revelationary. You know, most of this book was written in pockets of time and I'd never written like that before I always thought that I had to have you know my whole Saturday and I had to have all my snacks ready and I had to have the perfect playlist for actually just writing you just have to put words on paper that's all it is at the end of the day I love that it's like forget about like your perfect snack and your cup of tea and the candle and everything for like the picture perfect writing session and just like writing is all do the work. Yeah. The unglamorous side of things. Yeah. Well, that's it, isn't it? It's it's not glamorous to sit there in your trackies at 8 p.m. You know, you've just shut your work laptop and opened your personal one and you've got, you know, spaghetti in one hand and, you know, a dog at your feet. It's just, it's just you and the computer or paper, if that's how you prefer to write at the end of the day. That's perfect. That's very that's revealing of what yeah. every life is like, by the way. <laughs> that's exactly it. That's perfect. I love it. So... Thank you so much for joining us. It's been such a pleasure to chat about this wonderful book and learn more about your writing process. Thank you so much. It's been so much fun to talk to you. And again, super weird to be talking to people who I've pitched books to previously as well. So <laughs> it's been really lovely. Thank you for welcoming me to the other side of the curtain tonight. No worries. Uh, so um, where can people find and follow you online? I have to say your Instagram, bookstagram game is very strong. <laughs> Absolutely love your feed. So where can people find you? So you can find me on Instagram at Lauren Draper Writes. You can find me on TikTok at also Lauren Draper Writes. And you can find me on Twitter at Lauren D Draper. I've never had access to my own name as a writer, sadly. <laughs> um, I use Instagram the most often, super active. 
love people messaging me. I did a session with a bunch of teens and they've been messaging me questions. So I really love to hear from readers. Totally. My inbox is open. Oh, I love that. Oh, excellent and you know we're also trying to get on the tiktok as well oh my god scary i'm like actually maybe we should get some tips from your sister she's probably more the demographic that we need to be i feel so old on tiktok it's just, I know. yeah so confronting to realize cool. you're not the cool generation anymore but you know gonna pass the baton the gen gen z is so fun and they're doing some great things so they're so yeah. cool. I want to be like them. And I'm I know. Not. Just like perpetual. Like I've never been cool and now TikTok's just like. That's right. That you have cool. never been cool. That's what yeah. it's telling yeah. me. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, we love sharing bookish things on there. Looking forward to seeing your bookish adventures on there as well. Everyone should go and check out the uh, chair upcycling cover recreation video um we'll make sure we link to it because it's it's really really cute we loved seeing that thank you so much for joining us and congratulations again on the launch of your book amazing thank you so much thank you for listening to better words you can chat to us on instagram at better words pod and follow me michelle at unfinished bookshelf and me caitlin at just a bookish babe if you liked this episode please share it with a book loving friend and leave a rating or review 